Hello and welcome to Farmerama. This month we learn from an entomologist in Wiltshire about the importance of dung beetles in our farming systems. We hear how a medical herbalist in London is bringing people together to care for and heal each other. And a soil microbiologist shares how restoring hydrological cycles is vital in mitigating the climate crisis. Sally Ann Spence is a farmer and entomologist who's helped launch Dung Beetles for Farmers, a website with practical tips for how farmers can help this keystone species thrive on their farms. So dung beetles are a whole group of insects that are based around breaking down dung. They live, they inhabit the dung packs themselves. And the reason we don't see them so much in the UK and why we're not so aware of them is because they are actually living in the dung or under the dung. So we have two groups in the UK, those that live in it, the dwellers, and those that live underneath it in long tunnels underneath the dung. We don't have the rollers, the big David Attenborough nature programme where there's got a lump of elephant poo and it's rolling it across the road and the jeep stops and everybody leaps out, takes loads of photographs you know we don't have those in this country and because we don't have those we don't see them we just forget about our dung beetles but they are there dung beetles are phenomenally important in posh land um, and the biggest reason of all is that they actually remove the dung if you have that dung staying on the pasture it'll actually damage the pasture land it'll reduce the grazing opportunities for the livestock and it will actually increase pests within the livestock as well. So removing the dung is the first and foremost thing that the dung beetles do that's really, really important to everybody that's concerned with that pasture land. Now, they also, in removing the dung, they are releasing the nutrients that are inside that dung back into the pasture so that the roots from the plants can take it back up and the grass can grow better. Um, And so they're really, really important for that. And then you've got the fact that they're digging these tunnels underneath. The tunnelers, you've got soil aeration, you've got water infiltration. You know, these are all good things for soil health. They're actually taking the the, um, organic matter down and releasing the organic matter nutrients into the soil for all the things that are actually living within the soil as well. Um, If they're breaking up the dung, there's various parasites that actually pass through the animal and can be re-ingested. So you can have a a worm infestation in in an animal that will actually pass through the gut of the animal and out into the dung, still live, still in a larval form. It'll then change into a next stage in the larval form and it'll migrate into the grass growing around the dung climb up the grass and get eaten by the animal again and go back through its stages. And if you've got the dung being broken up and got rid of, that reduces the habitat for that parasite larvae to actually go through its whole cycle. It breaks it up and so it stops the animal getting the parasites. Uh, They are also really important food. Now, lots of people talk about dung beetles are food for bats. Yes, they are. They're very, very important to bats. And bats are a species that's in decline generally. Um, And they're also very important for birds and badgers, foxes, all sorts of things eat them. Owls will eat a dung beetle, a nice big geotrupid walking through the grass at night. An owl will quite happily have that. You've got all sorts of things that will feed on it from raptors to waders to songbirds, all sorts of different things. And here we have um, uh, swallows and swifts that come every year. And they will spend a lot of the time, especially the swallows, over the pasture land. And some of the things they're collecting are flies, but they're also collecting and feeding dung beetles to their larvae too. So they're very, very important to the whole ecosystem, the biodiversity, the soil health, and actually for the animals' health in the farm. So that you're getting three real big major things ticked off because of dung beetles. So really, really important. Tiny, but an awful lot of them. And that's what the important part is. 
So there's been a decline in dung beetles and we've been seeing this because we've been mapping their populations, finding out where they are and using historic specimens and the data in museums. So we've been able to build up a, a, a data line of what dung beetles were where at one stage. And then we've been able to look forward and, and actually go out and survey and see how dung beetles are doing today. And there has been a marked decline. Um, and that decline has come through many reasons. One is the removal of livestock. So I live on the Wiltshire Downs and up here was big sheep wool country, lots and lots of sheep all over the Downs. Those sheep have now gone um, and there's only a few grazing flocks and the grassland has been turned into arable. So you've lost that habitat. If there's no dung, there is no dung beetles. They, they can't survive without the dung. Change of use. Um, areas where there was livestock, the livestock has gone and it's now either a car park or a golf course or arable, that sort of thing. You know, that is a, a habitat removal and habitat loss. And then you've got um, habitat disturbance. So if you've got animals in a field one year and then you come in and you chain harrow it, um, you are disturbing that soil. And in the soil underneath the dung is where all the pupae are, all the, all the, the middle stage of the life cycle of the dung beetle. The, before they actually develop into a natural beetle, you will be disturbing them and exposing them to predators and everything else if you go through that soil. So soil damage in any way, shape or form in that respect. And if you're using an insecticide, you are going to kill insects or invertebrates. And it's obviously designed to kill off the parasites. Animal welfare is incredibly important. However, uh, depending on the range of lethal and sublethal, um, the chemical you're using, you get a range of lethal and sublethal effects. And uh, that sort of depends on the concentration of the various chemicals. But this will result in death in the dung beetles if it's very strong when they first come to the dung to eat the dung. Because you've got to remember, the dung beetles are consuming the dung. So if there's anything in the dung, they're going to end up eating it. So it's, there's, there's a real threat to dung beetles, the loss of habitat, the disturbance of habitat and the use of insecticides. As a, as a community of people, we all understand the importance of earthworms now. Um, everybody really gets earthworms. You know, earthworms are phenomenally important to our soil. And yet they're still quite small, an earthworm. But we now accept that earthworms are really, really important because there's lots of them. And what they're doing is incredible. What we've got to do is the same with dung beetles. You know, dung beetles are really small but there's lots of them and what they're doing is incredible. So, you know, we just need to get that mindset is, is just to accept that although the insects are small, it's the sheer mass of them and they really are moving it. A lot of people will go out into their paddocks and think, you know, yeah, the, well, basically, perhaps they don't think about the dung. Perhaps they haven't realised the dung has disappeared. They just accept the dung has disappeared. Uh, the report to the International Union for Conservation and Nature, the IUCN report, um, puts them nearly, well, virtually half of them, just over half of the dung beetle species, are considered locally or regionally threatened to extinct. You know, so let's not go out one day and suddenly realise that the dung is still there. Um, let's appreciate what's, what's actually moving that dung and, and doing those ecosystem services. And it is the dung beetles. Dungbeetlesforfarmers.co.uk is a collective effort by farmers, vets and scientists and will continue to be updated as research comes out. Check it out. Rashika Ahmad is a medical herbalist in London. She runs the medical practice Hedge Herbs and leads the Mobile Apothecary for Phytology, a cultural institute in Bethnal Green. Founded in early 2019, the Mobile Apothecary brings people together to create herbal medicines, which are then distributed to community members facing barriers to accessing food, shelter, and healthcare.
we spoke with Rashika as part of Who Feeds Us, our 2020 series about the people who helped feed us during the COVID-19 lockdown. This conversation wasn't actually shared in the final series, so here's a snippet to bring the Who Feeds Us stories back into our lives. And definitely head to our blog to read more of her story as well. Medicine originally was something that was accessible to all humans. It's something we've evolved with. We've cohabited with plants that are much, much older than us and really know how to inhabit the earth. They contain a lot of compounds that support our bodies, but also in their, their own right, they're living beings. And we make a kind of an exchange with them that is more than just about the physical cellular level. Medicine has become about extraction active ingredients from plants. That kind of reflects the way that humans have taken this extractive approach to the resources of the earth rather than a more cooperative, exchange-based way of living, if that makes sense. And um, healthcare isn't necessarily about caring and nourishing us, but it's about making money and profit a lot of the time. I guess it's part of the whole way that for the last few hundred years, humanity has seen progress being kind of distancing ourselves from our physical bodies and being more about rationality in the mind and yeah maybe it's not a surprising outcome but in the end we can't live without without what the earth gives us and yeah it's something that has been forgotten but I think is still very much present in in certain cultures so like in Ayurvedic medicine and Chinese medicine and pretty much most parts of the world that I've spoken to people about there's a strong idea that food is medicinal and people talk about the energies of food then like for example in a simple way food being heating or cooling or moist or dry this kind of thing and that's very much still present in I know it is in Indian culture and I remember speaking to someone at a workshop from Iran who was talking about this and the effect that the different energies of food have on your body. I think the rise of kind of foraging and wild food and herbalism all of this is really reawakened that knowledge in humans again. Yeah, we've been separated from it, but it's not unfamiliar, really. Not having this knowledge and using it as a kind of revolutionary act in this in this world, I think. I think it's massively important. On a personal level, it's really helped me living in London, knowing the plants that grow around me in the wild spaces, and also then feeling this desire to nurture it more and take care of the land that we live in. Originally, in the meadow were planted plants that grow wild uh, all around the British Isles that have a history of use, medicinal use for the last thousand years. They're ones that you have weeds, really, plants that you would find all over the place. So common ones are plants like yarrow, comfrey, which is a great um, healer of bones and connective tissue, plantain, ribwort plantain. I think there's marshmallow has been planted. Ground ivy is really good. Another good respiratory system herb. What else? Mugwort, I think there is. And vervain, which are two herbs that were sacred to the Anglo-Saxons in the 10th century. We did a, a harvest of a plant called elecampane, which is root that we use for respiratory infection and to heal um, the lungs and help with breathing. So also really kind of relevant for this moment. But it worked really well, the activity where we did a harvest of the root and then we collectively in a workshop made it into a syrup, a cough syrup. Uh, and the whole model just seemed to be really exciting. It was being in the garden, learning about the plants as a group and then communally making medicine together. 
Um, and this then turned into that we started distributing medicines we made from the garden and the workshops. And we were doing that. We've been doing that alongside Refugee Community Kitchen, um, who do hot food distribution. Uh, also at Bethnal Green. So it's all very much within one locality. So we started going out monthly and giving out seasonal medicines like cough remedies and immune protection alongside RCK. And that's still going on now, the mobile apothecary. We sort of shifted to doing weekly distribution as a rapid response when the when the pandemic started. So offering protective remedies um, for people living on the street or others that don't have access to welfare, don't have access to healthcare resources as much as as much as other people. People from different cultures have come along and shared with us the plants that they use in their home life as well. But I think it's been quite a revelatory thing for some people to say, go, all oh, right, yeah, these plants grow around us and we can use them quite easily. So a project that I'm doing closer to home in Wharton Forest is the community apothecary where we're starting to develop um, herb gardens, medicinal herb gardens, where people come and learn how to grow herbs themselves. Uh, and then we together, we're harvesting the herbs and making them into medicines for people in the community. And it's already been happening that people are saying, oh, right, like I'm going to start growing these in my garden at home, or we've got quite a big garden. Can we start to make it into a medicine garden? So that's really the beauty of this is, um, you know, we don't have this thing where some people have the knowledge and kind of deign to share it with others. It's something that is accessible to everybody and everyone can develop it and use it in their own way. Just have always this long-term vision of a place like the the medicine house in India that my dad's grandfather started of being a, a lovely hub, a social hub where people can come and hang out with each other and learn about medicines and learn about plants and take part in growing them together. For me, it's really a community thing. I just feel really happy and connected with the place where I live when we're in these gardens doing all the stuff together it just makes you feel strong and joyful you feel good you know in your body and your soul so for me I see it being a place you know a place a location where people can come to and connect with each other and feel taken care of and take care of each other so so yeah all of the things that are happening in London that I'm connected with all the gardens and the projects makes you feel like part of this big web, this network of people making each other healthier. Walter Yenner is a soil microbiologist and director of Healthy Soils Australia. Walter has talked extensively about the Earth's soil carbon sponge and hydrology as they relate to the climate crisis. This interview originally appeared on the podcast Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, made by our friend Kuhn Sijin. We're really grateful to Kuhn for allowing us to share his interview and definitely recommend tuning in to the whole thing. If you go back 420 million years, there were no soils. It was just ocean and rock. And it was the fungal processes of pedogenesis the lichens and the mosses that then dissolved that rock, leaving organic matter behind, creating soil. And it's a soil then that formed for the first time that succession of plants on land. And, of course, that built the soil. And with the soil, we built hydrology, the capacity of those soils to retain water, to infiltrate, retain rain before it used to just all run off. And that actually then created life on land, right? 
So it's really soil in nature is the point of generation. And so if we need to regenerate, it's just logical that, hey, we've got to go back and use exactly the same processes that nature did in creating the biosphere we all depend on. And it's safe to say we haven't been in the last 50 or in some cases 12,000 years. We haven't used those processes of nature. We've done the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. But it's we shouldn't be too harsh on ourselves because what we're saying is, no, we have agency. We have a capacity to either degenerate, degrade, or regenerate. So it's a very empowering understanding of soils that, hey, this is our point of agency. It's actually quite profound, too, that when you think of it, humans, it is the only point of agency we have on the planet. Explain that. Like you might contemplate, well, look, what can I do to the oceans? What can do do the air? But you really have to then come back to soils and our management of soils if you want to influence anything in this biogeological sort of cycle and, yeah, the dynamics of the planet. So now we've got climate change. We've obviously got a planetary emergency. It's critical. But when you think of our point of leverage, even CO2, we have to go back to soils because we have to ask the question, one, where did the CO2 come from? Yes, the oxidation largely of soils, for the, as you said, for the last 12,000 years. But also if we have to draw down CO2 from the air, what can we do? Yes, we can draw it down and put it back into the soil, a stable soil carbon. So even managing CO2 is a soils issue. Because many people are questioning that. They are saying, they're questioning the carbon piece, the CO2 piece, because they're saying it only gets stored in the thirst 30 centimeters, according to the comet model. It don't, it's not stable because then when we plow and you're saying it's the, our only point of agency we have is actually the soil. Well, look, uh, no, I mean, and the science is very important to mention. There's about 750 billion tons of carbon in the air as CO2. There's currently about 3,000 billion tonnes of carbon in our soils, but that may be half of what there was 12,000 years ago when you consider how much we've oxidised, cleared, desertified. So the soils as a major sink might have been eight times more than in the atmosphere. Wow. And in a sense, it's really the buffer, and in a sense, we have altered that buffer but it's the only point of agency, the only point we have of actually removing carbon from the air, from the ocean, to put it back into this other sink. Because a lot of the carbon went into the ocean. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, actually, it's very serious. because It says why soils are so important, because absolutely when we release carbon dioxide, initially about half goes into the ocean, but then it re-equilibrates and it ends up with about a third of the CO2 we've released is in the oceans. There's some 38,000 billion tonnes of carbon dissolved in the ocean. And it makes the point, you see, that's 50 times the carbon in the atmosphere. And so even if we try to draw down carbon in the atmosphere, the oceans will is a big buffered system will just re-equilibrate. So it will take centuries for us even drawing down, even having negative net emissions to change the carbon in the atmosphere 
in a meaningful way to change its greenhouse effect. So it's actually the evidence that look, we can't fix the climate anymore with CO2 emissions reductions because the ocean is such an enormous sink. And it will release it again yeah, as we are drawing it down from the air. And so we now have to say, where is there a bigger point of agency? And that's where we come to soils. So just to summarize that point, we have released so much carbon and a lot of that ended up in the oceans. And if we're now going to draw down, which we want to, and we're going to get to that in soils, but for another reason, yeah. going to draw down a lot of this carbon, it will basically be released from the oceans. And so the amount of carbon in the atmosphere won't really go down and will take centuries before that amount goes under 400 parts per million yeah. or 350 or whatever we're talking. So why are you not super depressed? Because that sounds very depressing. Okay, no, no, look, we gave up on worrying about carbon emissions as a tool for reducing climate. The CO2 atmosphere concentration, it can't affect the climate. But if we put carbon into the soil, then we have another force multiplier. Because if we put carbon in the soil, we can hold more water. Now we get to the interesting part. And if we can hold more water, then we engage the next more dominant whole fundamental of the climate, and that is that 95% of the heat dynamics of the blue planet is driven by water. The CO2 component in the air drives 4%. Wow. So now instead of being trying to manage the climate with 4%, we have 95% leverage effect if we manage the hydrology. But we can only do that if we have water in our soils. And so the carbon in the soil is critical to get the water in the soil. So that's why the soil carbon sponge is such an essential concept. It's not the fact of drawing down carbon. It's about rebuilding the Earth's soil carbon sponge, hydrology, and then our power to cool the planet safely and naturally in time through that hydrological process. So you're saying we have been pulling on the wrong lever, basically. We've been pulling on the 4% lever while we could be pulling or working on the 95% lever. Absolutely. Why are we all so excited about the CO2? Let's just take it a little bit further. See, I think we've been focused on the symptom, okay? We looked at Charles Keeling's beautiful graph from 1958 when he said here was CO2 going up, zigsaw going up every year. And we've looked at the symptom of our land degradation, our fossil fuel use, and said the symptom is the problem, and cleaning up the symptom is a solution. But it's not like that. You see, it's just the symptom. It's a resource. It's like fever, yeah. If we can take that resource and put it back into the soil, then we can engage hydrology. And hydrology is the driver of the heat dynamics, and hydrology is our potential to safely and naturally cool the planet almost immediately, not the centuries that we can no longer wait for CO2 to have an effect. We can use a 95% lever, as you said, not the 4% lever. And so it's... The CO2, and we have heard this before, actually, I will link the interview below with Zach Wise, where he called climate change and carbon the symptom of a much bigger of land degradation and broken water cycles. 
And that's exactly why I wanted to have you on it as well, because I've heard you speak on it and read a number of things on we need to focus on water. And it happens to be the same thing at the end in soil. Like that's the, if we regenerate and restore soils, we store a lot more water because of the carbon and not because we want to store the carbon, but we actually want to restore the water cycle. Yeah. Carbon is a resource that we need to use to rebuild the soils, to rebuild the water, to cool the planet. Exactly. And so just to reiterate the water cycle for people that are not spending a lot of time on that. What are the key pieces there? If you had to explain it to a six-year-old, what are the key pieces of the water cycle that we should all know? Okay. Well, look, I mean, obviously, first of all, you've got to look at water. 71% of the planet is covered with oceans, 4,000 meters deep, right? Four kilometers deep on average. So there's a lot of water on this planet. And it's got this extraordinary capacity to absorb and retain heat. And so that's why it's a key you know, part of the heat dynamics. And even with climate change, 93% of the additional heat that we're warming the planet with is going into the oceans. So what we're recording at the moment is only a fraction yeah. of what the system is taking. But then we've got to look at water saying, yep, that's the heat buffer effect. But now what are the processes that involve with warming and cooling the planet through these hydrological processes? And there's about 10 steps, both warming and cooling, where water regulates 95% of the heat dynamics of the planet. But they're very simple. And, for example, the key one that we can focus on is to say transpiration. When water is taken from soils by vegetation and taken up into the atmosphere, it has to transfer from liquid to a gas, water vapor. But to do that, it needs to be converted from liquid to gas, and that takes about 590 calories of heat energy per gram of water. So this is an enormous quantity of heat that is taken from the surface by vegetation transpiring and taken back up into the atmosphere. And of course, that cools the surface. It's like when we're sweating. So we, if you have a bare piece of land compared to exactly. a, a strongly vegetated piece of land, first of all, you feel it immediately because underneath it's cool compared to the other, but it actually cools, let's say the microclimate around that, in that, above it as well, because it takes so much energy and so much warmth. Yep. for that plant to transpire that liquid. so But it needs the water, obviously, somewhere, because the soil needs to be full of water, otherwise it cannot happen. Yeah. And the amount of heat that it does is profound. When you think of it, okay, you think of the Earth as a planet, there's solar energy coming in, 342 watts per square meter on average continually, and to have a stable climate, you've got to have 342 watts going out. And, of course, we've impeded that heat escape and that's the greenhouse effect and we heated the planet artificially about three watts per square meter which is about one percent unbalanced but the earth's transpiration these latent heat fluxes through transpiration evaporation they naturally take 24 percent of the heat that we're getting from the sun taking it from the surface back up into the atmosphere that's 20, 85 watts per square meter globally, or 24% of the heat energy this process is actually using to take it from the surface. And so theoretically, if we just increase the vegetation 4%, we're done. 
we can do that 1% cooling effect, right? So another argument to reforest, regreen. To regenerate, right? Exactly. Take away asphalt, yeah. So 4% regeneration, in a sense, offsets the abnormal warming of the planet. And of course, when you think of that, we've basically cleared half the vegetation on the planet already in the last 8,000 years, you know, through deforestation, desertification, agriculture, cities, etc. So we've eliminated 50% and we have to regenerate 4%. Sounds doable. Well, how easy is that? That's the interesting part, yeah. I mean, how beneficial and how doable and practical. And we couldn't resist adding this bit about the bacteria behind rain. But by far the most important in forested area or inland, warmer regions where ice and salt aren't there, are certain bacteria. Okay, and these are bacteria that are extremely hygroscopic. Meaning they attract to others. Louis Pasteur identified that hygroscopic, they can suck in lots of moisture molecules to make a big raindrop. And Louis Pasteur identified them way back in the 1870s, right? Aerobacter. And it's these bacteria. Now, these bacteria are formed by forests, certain forests in certain regions. And so the Amazon, for example, is generating these microbial precipitation nuclei. And we've got all the radio labeled data that well over half the rainfall in the Amazon is driven by the trees releasing these precipitation nuclei. And so we've got this wonderful sort of reality that actually rain is a symbiotic process of vegetation, of life. Instead of the other way around, we always hear like it needs to rain to create vegetation, but actually you need vegetation to make it rain. Beautiful. And so we now see this rain, the hydrology. See, So we see hydrology as a part of a dynamic cycle with vegetation and with soil. And so now we have rain. But if the rain falls on rock, it runs off into the ocean, is lost. But if it falls into a well-structured, healthy soil, it infiltrates, is retained for more evaporative cooling. And so we've simplified it. So now we have, yeah, transpiration, clouds, rain, soil. And that can actually drive the whole hydrology of the planet. It can drive the whole heat dynamics of the planet. And it can allow us to cool regions. And now let's get practically. I live in Canberra. It's an artificial city, 100 years old. It was created as an urban forest. And in a hot summer's day, as we're already getting now, 40 degrees centigrade, it's 12 degrees centigrade cooler Wow! in that urban forest areas compared to bare concrete heat island regions three, four, five kilometers away. That's a lot. That's a big difference. So we've got natural air conditioning of 12 degrees centigrade in an urban habitat simply because of this water cycle effect. I always feel uneasy about the tunnel vision focus on carbon dioxide in relation to the climate crisis. To be clear, I don't think this is an excuse for business as usual when it comes to fossil fuels or anything like that. You know, that's, that is a form of extraction and land degradation in itself, and there's just no doubt we need to move away from fossil fuels. However, 
I do feel very unsure or uneasy about the linear and transactional approach we're taking to carbon, such as through carbon markets and carbon offsetting. And so I'm excited by Walter's thinking because it's embracing the fact that carbon is one part of a complex interlinked system. And he shows that land regeneration, healthy soils and vegetation cover can have multiple benefits in this complex system. It's clear that we need to recognize this is about so much more than just carbon. This episode of Farmerama was made by me, Joe Barrett, Abby Rose, and Olivia Oldham. The interview with Rashika was by Lovejeet Daliwal. Our Patreon supporters help make Farmerama possible. We're very grateful to all of you who support us and allow us to bring you these stories every month. Even the smallest contribution makes a big difference to us. And if you'd like to consider becoming a supporter, visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama. Big thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team, Katie Revel, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, Dora Taylor, and Hannah Sodland. Our music is by Owen Barrett. 